Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this beautiful morning, Lord. Thank you for uh, just these songs we've been able to, to, to come and sing them as a church family and praise your holy name, Lord. As we come to your word, we pray that we would be we open to it with our hearts and our minds, uh, open to learning, growing, changing because of what you said all these years ago. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. He was a pretty good gerbil, gray and black and white. He wasn't a great gerbil because he had a bit of a problem with biting, but he was a pretty good gerbil. We had bought him a couple years before, and that when we went to the pet store, we thought we were buying two female gerbils. Turns out there was a little bit of a mistake, and the evidence was the six baby gerbils that popped out a few months later. He was a pretty good gerbil. Well, one day I went in my room, took him out to play. I was nine, and it took about a minute for me to realize that he wasn't just sleeping. That night, we had a proper gerbil burial under the deck. But what I remember best was the next day. The next day, I was in my mom's minivan. We had just went to Wendy's. We were driving down the road. And I'm in the back seat thinking about my gerbil. And so I pipe up from the back seat, Mom! Am I going to die? Now, this is about the last question I'm sure my mom wanted to answer that day. We're trying to get home for dinner, but this is what I asked. She handled it really well. She said, well, not for a very, very long time, Darvin. That wasn't good enough. But am I going to die? You could see her kind of squirm in her seat. She wasn't getting out of this one. <laughs> you don't need to worry about that, honey. But I, I was dealing with my fresh gerbil grief, and I needed answers. But mom, someday, am I going to die? Yes. Someday, a very long time from now, you will die. You will die. Do you remember the first time you realized you will die, that death is inevitable? For some of us, it was at our first funeral as a kid. For others, it was when we lost that first loved grandparent. For some of us, it was a gerbil. But there's a time in all of our young lives when we realize this very basic truth, you will die. This morning, we come to John 8, and we're in this chapter where Jesus is continuing to teach to some folks, a crowd of people in the temple courts, and he's going to give them this really stark, in-your-face warning. He's going to say it three times. You will die. You will die in your sins. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, or you want to look at the screens, we'll start in verses 21 through 24 of John chapter 8. Once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you will die in your sins. 
If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. So in just five verses, Jesus repeats this warning, this exact phrase, three times. And it begins with that realization that we all come to in our younger years at some point. You will die. But Jesus, his warning goes a little further. It's you will die in your sins. And hey, when Jesus repeats himself three times, we should probably pay attention, right? We should probably stop and pay attention. And so our only goal this morning is simple. When we walk out, I want us to understand this phrase, you will die in your sins. I want us to understand what Jesus meant by this phrase he repeats, this, this, this harsh warning he repeats three times in just five sentences. Jesus doesn't actually define this phrase in our passage. And so we're going to head all the way back to some of the first pages of the Bible, to Genesis 2 and 3, the fall, to understand this phrase, you will die in your sins. There we read this in Genesis 2, 7 to 8. The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. So God creates the first humans, Adam and Eve, and he puts them in the garden of Eden. Eden, like heaven, is defined as being a place of God's presence. God is always and everywhere present, but it was in the garden of Eden where we were able to be fully aware of his presence in perfect relationship with God. And after God places Adam and Eve in the garden, he gives his very first law. He says this in Genesis 2, 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, read this part with me. What does it say? You will certainly die. There's our phrase. Right in the first pages of scripture, you will die. God's law is how we regulate our relationship with him, not how we earn it. And God's very first law is that Adam and Eve must not eat the fruit of this tree. Kind of a simple law, right? <laughs> kind of a simple command. And if they do eat this fruit, what happens? They will die. They will certainly die. But soon we find that this one simple law is broken. Genesis 3, 1 to 6 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. There's our phrase again. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. 
So Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the tree. Romans 5.1 tells us sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. So this is the first sin of all of humanity that we're witnessing in these verses. We're trying to understand this phrase that Jesus uses three times in John 8. You will die in your sins. And here we find a piece of that in the very first pages of Scripture And it helps us define one of the words in our phrase, sin. What's sin? If you asked a bunch of your friends to define sin, you'd get a bunch of answers, wouldn't you? If you asked 10 people, define sin for me, you'd receive answers like like, um, hurting others. When I hurt someone else, that's sin. Or when I act against my own conscience, that's sin. But that is not the definition, the biblical definition of sin. Not even close. Think about Adam and Eve, that first sin for a moment. Did eating the fruit hurt any other people? No. There weren't any other people to hurt yet. Did that first sin act against their own conscience? No. Genesis 3, 6 tells us they had convinced themselves it was good. So why was eating the fruit sin? Because it broke God's law. It broke God's law and his word. This is why 1 John 3, 4 defines sin like this. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. So sin is defined as breaking God's law. Breaking God's law. Sin in the New Testament is this word, Greek word, hamartia. Hamartia, which just means missing the mark. It's an archery term. Have you ever shot a bow and arrow? When I was a kid, one of my little brothers and I, my youngest brother, we spent all day making a makeshift bow and arrow, just one single arrow. We went back to the wood pile and got some scraps of wood, and we sanded it down, made some fake arrows. We were really proud of it. We had very low standards. (laughs) And since I was the older brother, I got to try it first. That's how things kind of work when you're growing up, right? So we made this big bullseye. We got a piece of paper. We drew this big bullseye on it. We stapled it to the biggest tree in our backyard. My little brother was standing right by it, and I backed up about a dozen, two dozen steps. I pulled that bow as hard as I could, and I let it go. And when I let it go, I was pretty sure this was a good shot. I mean, this was going to hit the bullseye. But instead, I watched the slow motion. That arrow just veered left right into my brother instead. (laughs) He was okay, but that's sin. That's missing the mark. That's missing the mark. You've got an aim, you've got a bullseye, and you just miss. That's sin. And in Scripture, the mark, the bullseye, is God's law. And sin is when our lives miss that mark, when our lives, our attitudes, our actions, our hearts, our thoughts, they, they, they miss the mark of God's law. They fail to conform to God's law. So sin is simply breaking God's law, breaking God's law. The very first sin was Adam and Eve eating the fruit in the Garden of Eden, right? But the lesson, as we're, we're sitting in that passage just for a second, is how on earth did they get to a spot where they could break one very simple rule? I mean, how does that happen? Genesis 3, 6 tells us, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was 
good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. Adam and Eve sinned because they do ex- did exactly what we do so often. They convinced themselves to trust their own evaluation of what's right and what's wrong, even when it contradicted God's word and God's law to them. And the serpent, if you were listening to the story, if you've heard the story, the serpent helps, right? He makes them question what God's law was, his word, his judgment. And if you're a believer in Jesus, you gotta pay attention to this because our words matter. If you're a believer, you've got to understand, your words, they matter. They matter in the lives of your friends who don't know Jesus. They matter in the lives of your family that are kind of on the fence about this whole faith thing. Our words matter. When we tell other people a certain action is good, when it's defined in Scripture as sin, we're not helping anyone. We're not being kind. We're not helping others find God. We're the serpent in the Garden of Eden. When our words as Christians confirm for others, yes, you really should trust your own evaluation of right and wrong instead of God's word. Even when it contradicts God's word, we're playing the role of Satan for him. We're tricking people into sin and death. Our words desperately matter in the lives of the people we know and love. You will die in your sins. Jesus says it three times in John 8. And now we've defined sin. Sin is breaking God's law. But next we want to examine that other word, death. What does death mean in Jesus' phrase, you will die in your sins? And for that we return again to the fall in those first pages of Genesis. God told Adam and Eve, if you break my law, if you eat the fruit, you're going to die. And then what happens? Do they eat the fruit? Yeah. And so you're expecting them to immediately physically die. But instead, this happens. Genesis 3, 23 to 24. The Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden a cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So do Adam and Eve keel over and die on the spot when they eat the fruit? No. But if you're reading the story for the first time, that's kind of what you're expecting. But they don't. Because the Bible uses two definitions for death. There's a death that's physical and there's a death that's spiritual in Scripture. The Garden of Eden was a place defined by God's very presence. And the punishment for Adam and Eve's sin for breaking the law was not an immediate physical death but a spiritual death when God banished them from the Garden of Eden, separating them from his presence. So spiritual death is a separation from God. Just like with Adam and Eve, the result of our sin, our breaking God's law, is separation from God. It's the same separation Jesus talks about in John 8, like in verse 21 where he says, where I go, you cannot come. Or verse 23, you are from below, I am from above. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, hey, hey, when I die, when I'm crucified, I'm going to live with my Father in heaven. But when you die, you can't come because you're from below. 
So in this phrase, you will die in your sins. Death is eternal separation from God. This is why Paul can say in Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your transgressions and sins to people who were still alive. Because there's two ways to think biblically about death, physical death and a spiritual death. And Jesus is using the spiritual definition of death in this passage. Not to mean our physical death in the future, but a spiritual separation from God in the present that lasts all the way to forever. It's the same separation Adam and Eve experienced when God drove them from the Garden of Eden. This separation will go on for eternity. And Jesus' mention of below makes the location clear. Every person has a soul that's going to last forever, either in God's presence or God's absence. And these Pharisees will spend eternity separated from God below. Below was a euphemism in the day for hell. Hell exists because of the character of God. God's holiness will not tolerate sin, and his justice will not allow sin to go unpunished. Hell is what hell is because God is who God is, a righteous, holy, and just God. Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible, including here. Hell is real, and hell will be full of real people, people you know, people you love. And if you're a follower of Jesus, it might surprise you, surprise me, that six in ten American adults believe that hell is real. I thought it'd be a bit lower. Six in ten American adults agree hell is real. However, only about half of one single percent believe they're headed there because two-thirds of Americans believe they're basically good people. So when we're talking to our neighbors about God, about things of our faith, know that the odds are that they actually believe in heaven and hell. But that they, they don't think they're going there because they believe being good earns heaven. And they think they're, hey, generally a pretty good person. So our job as Christians and our witness is to help those neighbors, those friends, those family realize the reality and truth of sin and their desperate need for Christ on the cross in order not to be separated from him for eternity. And if we really listen and believe to Jesus' words, if we don't know him, where I go, you cannot come. We will have an urgency to think about the eternal destinations of our friends and take that serious enough to share the gospel, even when we feel a little hesitant, even when that feels a little awkward. You will die. You will die in your sins, Jesus tells the Pharisees. And now we can define what Jesus meant by death in our phrase. Death is eternal separation from God. Our goal for the morning is pretty simple. To understand this phrase, Jesus repeats three times in just five verses. You will die in your sins. We've defined sin as breaking God's law. We've defined death, eternal separation from God. And this is how those two go together. Breaking God's law earns us eternal separation from him. Or said in a different way, sin earns death. This is a consistent truth throughout scripture. We saw it in Genesis 2.17 where God said, hey, if you eat of the tree, if you break my law, you will certainly die. 
Proverbs 10, 16 said the earnings of the wicked are sin and death. Romans 6, 23 says the wages of sin is death. Breaking God's law earns us eternal separation from him. It's for a number of reasons. We could, we could be here all day talking about why we're separated from God because of our sin. But maybe the easiest is this. Colossians 1.21 teaches that our sin makes us strangers and enemies of God. Our sin, breaking God's law, makes us strangers and enemies of him. Last year, an old acquaintance of mine called me up. I barely know the guy. He, he's a stranger. About the only thing I know about him is he's been in and out of jail over the last few years. And that's probably why I haven't talked to him recently. So we get caught up on the phone and then about halfway through the conversation, he says, hey, I'm coming to Denver for a few weeks, two or three weeks for work. Can I stay at your house? What would you do? <laughs> if a, seriously, what would you do if a stranger asked to stay and live at your house? That is exactly what we do to God. That's what we do to God when we assume that we can live this life without knowing him and yet still live for eternity in his home with him. Our sin makes us strangers and enemies of God. And God's not going to live with strangers and enemies any more than we would want to live with a stranger or an enemy for the next 10 million years in our home. Our sin separates us from God forever. So we've had this goal of defining this phrase, you will die in your sins. And now that we've put the ideas of sin and death together, we can do that. You will die in your sins means breaking God's law earns us eternal separation from him. So now we understand this phrase, we can head back for a moment to John 8. There in verse 13, we find out that Jesus wasn't speaking this warning just to anyone. He was speaking it to the Pharisees. He said, you will die in your sins to this group of folks we call the Pharisees. Now, if you would have met a Pharisee in that day, you'd have thought, hey, this is a good person. They meticulously followed the law down to every detail. They even made up their own details to make sure they were following the law. They gave to the poor. They were really, really moral. You'd have saw them and said, you know what? That is a good, good person. And yet it's to these good people that Jesus says, you will die in your sins. And the thing is, if, if those people who were probably the best, most law-abiding people of all time could be in this situation. We know we can too. All of us have sinned. All of us have broken God's law, and that earns us eternal separation from God. It has nothing to do, absolutely nothing to do with good, being a good person. You're not going to live up even to the Pharisees' standards. I'm not going to either. It has nothing to do with being a good person. And if you don't know him, Jesus would say the same to you today as he did to these people back then in John 8, 21. You will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. But there's hope in this passage. It's hope. In John 8, 12, the very first verse of our passage, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light of life. Of life. In the rest of our passage, Jesus uses words like, know me, in verses 19 and 28. Believe I am he, meaning the Messiah, 
in verses 24 and 28. And follow me here in verse 12. So if you know Jesus, follow Jesus, believe in him. Verse 12 says you will never walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. Now and for eternity. You will die in your sins unless, unless you know Jesus. And death's inevitable, isn't it? As I sat in the back seat of my mom's minivan as a nine-year-old, thinking about my poor dead gerbil, I piped up and asked my mom, Mom, am I going to die? And as much as my mom, I'm sure, would have loved to have given any other answer, there's only one answer to give. And it's yes. You will die. Death is inevitable. But in this country, we try not to deal with death. We try to pretend like we can put it off forever. We're obsessed with putting death off forever, but here's the deal. You can eat your vitamins. You can do your yoga moves every day. You can triple filter your water, but still you're going to die. You can go vegetarian, run a marathon every month, You can pay double to get apples with cute little organic stickers on them. (laughs) But still, you're going to die. You can find a way to live to 110. But still, you will die. You'll die in your sins unless you know Jesus. So about the only question we've got left this morning is this. Do you know him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this morning. Lord, this is a warning, uh, not just to the people that you were speaking to, but to us. And so I pray that, that for those of us who don't know you, that we would take this warning to heart. And for those of us who do, I pray that you would let the, these, these, these words seep into our hearts, convict of us of our own sin, revel in your grace and enjoy that that relationship with you. As we come to this time of communion, I pray that you open our hearts to the uh, remembering your sacrifice. I pray that we would take it in your spirit and take it uh, with a humble heart. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.